for me, uh, next to skin is synthetic or a wool synthetic blend. I find it allows the perspiration to get onto the next layer the easiest. That was Scott Sugimoto, and this is episode 114 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Winter is upon us again, and as we talked about last week on the show, so is the season for base training. For many runners in Canada and the northern United States, this can mean a lot of long, slow miles and very cold temperatures, which can seem daunting and maybe even a little scary. We thought this would be a good time to re-release an episode we recorded with Scott Sugimoto in January of 2021. He is a gentleman from Winnipeg who has an extensive running history in both road running and trail running. He has completed multiple half and full marathons, as well as many trail ultra marathons, including Active Epica and Arrowhead. He is currently training on his mountain bike for Tuscobia 160 and the Yukon Ultra 300 mile race, coming up in a few months. Scott obviously has an affinity for winter and is a wealth of knowledge on the subject. In this episode, we get into the do's and don'ts of winter running, including what to wear, what not to wear, how to keep your water from freezing, preventing frostbite, and footwear. We hope you enjoy this conversation as one of Kim's closest friends shares some of his wisdom with us all. Hey, Scott, it's so good to have you on our podcast today. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Kim. It's great to be here. Carolyn and I um, really are interested to talk to you today about some things that we haven't talked about with any other runners, uh, things like winter running and such, since it's that time of year. But I, I'm just really excited to chat with you, period, because it's been a long time since we've had a chance to catch up. So this is going to be kind of, I think, just a really good casual conversation, hopefully. So Scott, why don't we start out with you just giving our listeners a bit of a background on you. Where do you live, your fa- you know, family, and, and talk to us a bit about how you got into running and then trail ultra running in particular. Yeah, absolutely. So born in Carmen, Manitoba. Uh, but moved to Winnipeg as a, as an infant, um, married, uh, 20 years, uh, two adult children. Um, running, uh, actually for me, started, uh, well, didn't start running, but uh, 2008 on Boxing Day, I, I stepped on the scales um, and I was uh, 235 pounds. Uh, high stress uh, in a job that I wasn't really enjoying, uh, some things going on personally with uh, my youngest daughter at the time. And uh, I was about a month or so away from my 49th birthday. Uh, And as I looked down at the scale, I thought, well, I can't do much about getting older, but maybe I can do something about being fatter. Uh, So later that day, I took advantage of uh, some Boxing Day sales, bought some runners and what I'd hoped would be appropriate clothing for going outside. And uh, the next day, took a step outside the uh, front door of my house uh, for gear, uh, I had my cell phone that I set for a timer on for 10 minutes, and um, I just started going, and I, I tried to be at a pace that I thought I could do for 20 minutes, and just waited for that buzz to go off in my pocket to signify 10 minutes was up, and turn around and came home, and that's where, uh, that's where running started. So, Scott, your very first run was in the winter, in December. December, uh, yeah, it would have been the 27th of 2008. How fitting is that? Okay. <laughs> and it's funny, so... I didn't, didn't think of that till you, uh, till just now as we're sitting here to start chatting. I said, oh my goodness, yeah, I did start even in the winter. <laughs> yeah, you were birthed in the winter, your running story. Um, okay, so what happened after that? Well, you know, I continued on and my... Uh, my plan I set up for myself was uh, every other day because I, uh, and again, I knew, well, not a whole heck of a lot, uh, thimbleful uh, about running, um, but I thought every day would be stupid and, and I wouldn't be able to maintain it. So it was every other day, started with 20 minutes and um, just kind of went from there, uh, started eating better. And again, when I say better, that meant not going to VJ's and having, you know, a double and a single cheeseburger, actually cut that out altogether. 
um, by June or just before June managed to lose, I'm going to say somewhere in around 30, 40 pounds Whoa. and, uh, had the idea of, I'd try the half marathon. Um, at that point in time, my longest run was only nine miles. Um, but I thought if I just, you know, paced myself better, I 13 miles, you know, another four miles, how hard could it be? You know, famous last words, right? Um, so I signed up with my, the only goal I had was to finish ahead of the person that ran the full marathon. <laughs> to finish ahead of the first place person who ran the full marathon. That was my only goal. Mm-hmm. And? and? Um, well, yeah, I managed to, and it's funny too, because again, I, I knew nothing uh, about running and a pace what was good what wasn't and I guess I've since learned that that's really all relative to the person anyway Uh, but I managed to cross the line just shy of two hours which meant I finished ahead of the guy who ran and won the full marathon so I felt okay about all that (laughs) that I've never heard of that goal before but that's actually (laughs) really awesome that's that's very realistic and that's great so well I have your results up here in front of me so 2008 Manitoba half marathon 159.46 I think I would have to double check this but that's somewhere right around Elliot Kipchoge's yes (laughs) Yes. two hour marathon so good job (laughs) (laughs) under artificial conditions there you go but okay let's just not gloss over the fact that you went from not running at all 40 pounds heavier, six months previous to this, to running a sub two half marathon. That's amazing. So you didn't stop running there. You went on to do a whole lot more halves and a lot of fulls, full marathons over the next, what, approximately six, uh, six years, five, yeah, six years? Yeah, thereabouts. Which ones stand out to you? Well, of course, I think, you know, the first marathon and for me, um, was a, a bit unique too, because after finished the Manitoba half, about a few weeks later, I got a phone call from uh, the vice president of, of where I was working at. And uh, he started out being very nice and saying how well you heard how well I'd done running a half marathon and this and that. And then the next thing I know, <clears throat> excuse me, he's telling me that uh, he signed me up to run a full marathon. <laughs> uh, to which I replied, well, I don't really want to run a full marathon, but he said, well, you know, we have no one from our division uh, signed up with the uh, Canadian Diabetes Foundation. He said, it's fun. You get to go to Florida and uh, we do the fundraising for you. So all you have to do is, is run. And then he hung up the phone. <laughs> so I thought to myself, well, I, I guess I'm going to run a marathon. The nice part was I got a free trip to Disney World in Florida. Uh, and again, uh, training was poor at best. Uh, for someone going into a marathon. In my head, I thought, you know, four and a half, five hours seems about right. I mean, I ran a two-hour half, so seems realistic. And I saw this young lady with a little stick, the pace bunny, and she's going to said 4.15. And I thought, well, this, okay, I'll, I'll try this group. And that worked well till about mile 17, and then uh, the wheels fell off the bus. And I did manage to cross the line. I just shy of four hours and 30 minutes, struggled mightily for the last four or five miles and got to the finish line. And I thought, this is a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Now, does this speak to your personality a little bit then? (laughs) You said in the same sentence, if I'm hearing you correctly, I I struggled mightily and it was like dragged myself across the finish line and it was so much fun. (laughs) You know, at mile 20, there was an up, uh, like it followed the highway and there was a you went along this ramp going up. And I remember as I approached it, I'm thinking, do I walk up this or run up this? And then, of course, you know, being a man and not the smarter gender, I decided to run up it. And the cramping must have started immediately afterwards. And I tell you, from mile 20 to the finish, it was it was a new experience in pain. I mean, <laughs> Full on type two funny. Eh? Yeah, a hundred percent. And when and when the fella in the pink tutu carrying the magic wand went blowing by me at mile twenty three, uh, it was it Very was humbling, quite enter- right? it was quite entertaining. Yes, but like I say, I crossed the finish line. My quads, I thought, would never uh, feel the same, but I thought this this is a lot of fun. I'm going to do this again. 
Manitoba uh, Marathon, fuller half, um, you know, always be uh, special to me as well. Fat Dog, which, uh, you know, um, that road trip that uh, Kim and I and, and our friend Todd went on, uh, that event, as much as that was just an absolute disaster for me, Carolyn, I mean, it, uh... <laughs> okay, okay, hold on, hold on, Scott, we got it, we got to give a bit of a backstory on this. Yeah. I've been I've been waiting for a good time to talk about how we met. Yes. So let's reminisce a little bit here. After Scott, you know, it's made a name for himself in halves and fulls, you did transition into ultras, which we'll get into in a little bit here. But fast forward to 2015. And I had just moved to Manitoba from Vancouver Island in August. And winter was now, you know, coming. We actually met just very casually and briefly at a Lemming Loop um, course recon kind of training run that Dwayne Sandal had done that fall. You and Fiona were out there and I remember you looked so official, like you had your gaiters on and your high socks. And (laughs) I was just like, oh, wow, these are, this is like serious business. And you were serious business type of people. But anyways, we didn't really connect. And I don't honestly remember how it happened because it was so crazy. We were at the, in November now, three months of me living in Manitoba. And it was the, can you say it, Scott? Full moon, frosty, beaver, beaver half, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's a long name. This this fat ass run that was along the the river here in Winnipeg in November, and this was now my very first time running in full on snow below, really zero. It was minus seven, and I I was I was thought I was going to die. I didn't know the route. Somehow we had connected, and I was supposed to follow you, but you yeah. took off and left me. You and Todd in the dust. Yeah. And I, I just, my whole goal was to just keep up with the person in front of me so that I wouldn't get lost. But anyways, so what happened at this meetup at the Forks in Winnipeg is Scott throws out this comment about how he wants to do Fat Dog 120 the next year. And here I am still grieving the fact that I'm not in BC anymore. And I looked at him and I went, well, I'm coming with you. Like, if you're going, if you're doing Fat Dog, I'm going too. <laughs> And that was it. The three of us, yourself, Todd and I, committed to doing Fat Dog the next summer. Yeah. I did not know you guys from Adam. I don't know how I decided (laughs) that I was going to do a 24-hour road trip and race with you that summer. It was just crazy. But we ended up becoming the best of buds. Yes. And I can honestly say now, Scott, you are one of my favorite people on this earth. You are such an awesome human. And that meeting was one of the best things that has happened to me anyways in the last five years. It was truly special. You know, Kim, when uh, I think of Fat Dog and I, I you know, I, and I, as I mentioned, it was uh, as a race or an event for me, an absolute disaster. Uh, Caroline ended up yeah. DNFing 25 <laughs> miles into a 120 mile run. You know, when the when the cleanup guy, you know, the the, the fellow that uh, follows everyone in to make sure they're OK, when he starts to pass you, you know, <laughs> you know, you're probably not doing all that well out on the trail that day. Oh, but, and you were doing the 120. Oh, my yes. goodness. Oh, he was so committed to that race. Both Scott and Todd did the 120. And I I was a bit more cautious and I decided to do 70. So I still hadn't even started my race when I got that call from you, Scott. And oh, it was heartbreaking. But we can we can I ask then um, what like what kind of goes through your head? Like where's your mindset at when you come to terms with the fact that you have to drop out of a 120 mile race at mile 25 or well, you know, I, I could have uh, I could have had the opportunity to continue, but the next get out point was at mile forty, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the time frame to get there, you know, you say fifteen miles, but on the trail it could have been God knows how many hours, and I just wasn't mentally prepared to go through all that. Um, it was gutting. I mean, I was just crushed. Was it a, a training thing or do you have any sense of what happened? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I got myself so worked up about this event. Mm. We got to the start line and uh, I'm going to call it like just a dump of adrenaline. I remember looking up at the mountain going, holy crap. You know, I think before we even got out of the parking lot, I was just uh, mentally just done. Mm. 
for whatever reason. And I think I just made the race too big. So, you know, like I say, you one, two, three, go and you go. And I don't know, that first climb seemed to go on forever. And I mean, it's a beautiful course, beautiful event. Um, you know, I'll be honest with you. If, um, if I had the legs for it still, um, I would go back there in a heartbeat and try that sucker one more time. It, it really was a beautiful, beautiful course. Like you couldn't ask for something more gorgeous. No, yeah. 100%, Kim. Yeah. But in spite of all that, um, again, other than, you know, the, the big thing traveling with, you know, Todd and Kim and, and uh, those relationships and meeting some wonderful people out there, um, I don't think if I had gone to Fat Dog, uh, I would have had the um, wherewithal to jump into some of these events afterwards that I did. So as much as it was a disaster, in itself, uh, I, I think the setup for, you know, going and trying some other events was uh, all hinged on going to that one event there. So let's just summarize a little bit here. Um, we kind of just jumped right in there to Fat Dog, which we do. The ultra runners just jump in everywhere. <laughs> but you had done your first trail ultra in 2012, which was the Spruce Woods Ultra, 50 kilometer race, yeah. correct? Yeah. And then in 2015, you actually completed a hundred mile distance there. So the year before fat dog. So you did have some good experience at longer distances. And then after that, you really transitioned and became quite the specialist for these long winter events. Can you tell us a bit about what happened in the next few years there? You, you hinted at, you know, moving on to do some other big things. Well, yes, yeah, kind of funny after, um, and again, uh, fat dog and kind of licking my wounds from, from that, uh, in conversation with, um, now someone who's, you know, become a friend and certainly started out more as someone that I, and if I said idolize, she would slap me across the head. So I won't use that phrase, but someone I admired for a while, uh, Sue Lucas, um, having some conversation with her, she suggested, why not try active Epica? It's a challenge. If you're looking for a challenge, it's a challenging event. You know, it's in the winter. In her mind, it was, you know, something that if I was looking for, you know, something different to do. And up until that point in time, you know, I'd done a, a local event here, uh, the Hypo Half, a few times. Um, when Sue and I talked about it, uh, I thought back to, you know, when I was a, a young child, you know, my heroes were the Arctic, Antarctic explorers, the uh, bush pilots in, you know, the northern uh, Northwest Territories and such. You know, so as much as maybe I wasn't discovering the North Pole or South Pole, uh, just traveling across the winter landscape almost reminded me of uh, a childhood version of me, um, which sounded like something just fun. Again, type two fun out in the snow, but <laughs> um, it, it just seemed like a great fit. So I signed up for the uh, 125 kilometer event, um, had the great fortune of being and I don't want to say with, but that same year, a group of uh, American folks came up that were uh, after the order. Um, Karen, I don't know if you're familiar with the event, um, you know, a little $5 trophy for people who compete, uh, complete the, these three different events, um, Tuscoby, Arrowhead, and Active Epica. Um, and of course, they're, they're six weeks apart and total mileage could be in around 400 miles of travel. Um, you know, when you're doing these events. So anyway, a group of these folks came up. Uh, Wait, got... stop. When you say 400 miles of travel, most people would think driving between events. Oh, you mean yes. 400 miles of on foot travel. Yes. Uh, Correct. Yes. Okay. The, the I just wanted themselves. to make sure nobody missed that key thing. <laughs> yeah. The, okay. total travel, the total mileage out of the three events uh, is in around 400 miles with Tuscobia at 160, Arrowhead at 135 and, uh, Active Epica, you know, at that point in time had the 125 or the 160, uh, kilometer event. Most of these American folks signed up for the 160 event and I'm going to call him the smart one. Uh, Scott Coomer, uh, decided he, he got the, he got the designation of getting the order and he thought whether I do the 125 or 160, I still get my trophy. So he thought, to heck with that. I'm going to do the 125. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was, uh, like I say, my very first uh, winter ultra. And of course, oddly enough, though, uh, that year, they, they call it the warm year. And through the day, I believe the temperatures almost hit zero. So it was actually quite a, a warm day out. Which is actually hard, right? 
it's the people who do, had done the event a few times had actually said other than the one year when it was 30 below with the big wind um, was probably the second most difficult day to have been out there because you're uh, with the snow. I mean, you're, it's wet, you're, it's not hard packed if it's any depth. So you're falling. So you're ankle deep in wet snow. I ended up being almost crotch deep in snow at one point in time when I, both my legs sunk in. And then uh, depending on the time of day, the uh, Crown Valley road, I believe it is going into Niverville was five miles of just mud stick to your shoes felt like you're adding five, 10 pounds as you're walking along that road. And because the ditches with the snow was so deep, your only choice was to travel on this mud road. It was awful. Still mm. have nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people wouldn't think that warmer temperatures could represent more difficult, but yeah, when the snow freezes hard pack um, and it's, you know, smooth it can almost be just like running on dirt um if it's colder but as soon as it hovers around zero you've got mashed potato snow and your gear you're maybe sweating more than you planned because you're overdressed or lots of different things happen which i want to get into a little bit more with you here scott you um if, if there's anybody that's a winter specialist for running it's you and i think a lot of people finding themselves right now in the middle of this pandemic, a little bit kind of fish out of water, <laughs> frozen water, um, yeah. people running outside in the winter for possibly the first time. They would normally just run on treadmills or indoors on tracks in the wintertime. I know hardly a day goes by that I don't get a question about what kind of shoes should I be wearing or, you know, how do you run in the winter? So what advice would you give to someone who finds themselves in that situation? Well, um, you know, you'll, you'll hear people talk about, you know, you don't want to sweat. Well, to me, that's a bit of a misnomer because let's face it, the minute you go out the door and even if you're going for a brisk walk, you're going to sweat. So I, I think it's really how you layer for that, that really is going to protect you. So why, why is sweat something you want to manage in winter running? Well, again, for what works for me, if you're not allowing me to get away from your skin and to the surface layer of your clothing, uh, you're going to get, stay damp right against your skin. And um, that's when you're going to get really cold. So a good base layer, you know, you'll hear some people talk about synthetic, some people talk about wool. Again, I think that's a personal preference. For me, uh, next to skin is synthetic or a wool synthetic blend. I find it allows the perspiration to get onto the next layer the mm -hmm. easiest. The next layer up, and again, the next layer up for me, depending on the temperature, could be the only other layer I'm wearing. That tends to be a lightweight wool or wool blend, and then maybe a quite breathable shell on top of that. Not a hard shell, but something offers some wind resistance, perhaps, depending on what, what it's like outside. But my go-to jacket now is, again, not windproof, but wind resistant, but it's got uh, panels underneath the arms and that, and, and a spot for some air to vent at the back. So it uh, offers some protection, but still quite breathable. So you're really, you know, emphasizing allowing that sweat to, to get away from the inside layers and, and out yeah. rather than doing what I did during some of my first winter training runs here when I didn't know what I was doing. And I, yeah, were really thick, way too many clothes and a, and a harder shell on the outside. I remember I wore some wind pants once and oh my goodness, I was absolutely soaked. You're right. Got cold. And the other thing is dehydration and water intake can yeah. be very, very important in the winter because people don't realize how much you actually do still need to drink. <laughs> and if you get dehydrated, you get really cold as well. So what do you do as far as water? How do you keep your water from freezing, Scott? How often do you drink? What do you drink? What do you do when you're outside running with regards to hydration? So, you know, with the, and I'm going to call them the normal kind of running bottles, that people will wear um, upside down. I found in the past will keep allow you to use the nozzle on the on the bottle for a lot longer as opposed to carrying it upright. Uh, that water adds a bit of an insulation barrier. So when you open and close to drink it, it like I say, as long as you have some water in there, it'll certainly uh, keep from freezing up uh, longer. 
If you're someone who likes a hydration pack, if you can have that just on top of your first layer and then layer on top of that, so your body heat will help keep the bladder from freezing up. Some people run the hose down their arm. Some people find that a little uncomfortable, um, but that certainly helps in keeping the hose from freezing up. And then you can put the, uh, your mouthpiece inside your mitt and that helps keep it from freezing. You know, you can get the hoses that are, are better insulated. Um, I, I find just across the chest and underneath the, my clothing tends to keep it um, from freezing up. Uh, again, for the ultra runs, I've gotten into using uh, small bottles from uh, the Yeti Rambler. Um, they're an insulated bottle and you can put hot water in them or warmer liquid. And then, and so to keep from having to put my mouth to the metal ridges, uh, I purchase silicone straws so I can take the top off and I can drink without having to tip the bottle up, you know, risk spilling on myself. And uh, these bottles keep your fluids from freezing for, I mean, I've been outside 30 plus minus 30 temperatures, excuse me, uh, eight, 10 hours at a time. And um, I've never had an issue with using uh, these uh, ramblers from Yeti. So you put warm water, I found that works quite well as to do, put hot to warm water in the bottles. Do you put anything like, do you find electrolytes helps to keep your water from freezing? Um, the electrolytes will help a bit, um, you know, for sake of argument, if you were to put a diet pop can and a regular pop can out on your front door, um, you'll find for a little bit that the regular pop will take longer to freeze than the diet one, just because of the sugar and the other stuff that's in it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, absolutely. It'll certainly make a bit of a difference. Um, but in these insulated bottles, I, you know, I, I do it just to have the electrolytes there, but I don't necessarily do it to keep it from freezing uh, or keep it from freezing any longer than um, not having it in there. This is actually really fascinating, Scott, and honestly, something I, as a shorter distance runner, haven't given a ton of consideration to. Definitely the the layering that you talked about in terms of dressing, but the hydration. So is this something that you're talking about more for the ultra runners, people that are going to be out there six, eight hours like you're talking about? Or does this apply to people who are going out for their, you know, 16K long run because they're a half marathon person yeah well depending on the temperature outside and again from running in the past you know i found like you know carrying the water bottle in in your holster um upright and it just uh, i find that it, again depending on the temperature and even on a training run like what you're describing carolyn you know you get that where it freezes up a bit right and around the yeah. nozzle and you pull it open and you know all of a sudden nothing's coming out but you can shake it you can feel fluid you know there's fluid still in there so that upside down piece um, you'll really find that you'll extend how much longer uh, you're going to be able to drink from your bottle. I think it's important to mention, you know, one could ask, you know, Carolyn said 16K training run, do you even need to drink? Do you even need to take water with you in the winter? I personally, and now everybody's different, but I personally find I almost need to drink more in the winter than I do in the summer not more, I would say sooner. Like if in the summer I could get by with a 10 mile run without taking any hydration with me in the winter, I do need to drink a little bit. And it is that exact reason that if you get even slightly dehydrated, I get really cold and that's yeah. just me. Absolutely. Maintaining like level, if you know, a higher level of hydration in the winter, I think is important. And it's deceiving. People think that, you know, you don't feel like you're sweating. You don't feel like you need to drink and then you stop. And then all of a sudden you're super cold mm -hmm. in the yeah. summer. You can run, you know, it's quite normal to finish a marathon or a half marathon in a severe state of dehydration and it's fine. But in the winter, it's dangerous. At least that's my opinion. I agree a hundred percent, Kim. And I think because you don't have that reference of feeling that perspiration where you think you don't have to drink as much. So, you know, your yeah. key of just drinking to drink, I think is really true. And, and let's face it, you're burning that much more energy staying warm outside, mm -hmm. um, you know, a phrase that exactly. I know, I know we didn't make it up, Kim, but I know a phrase, you know, you and I've talked about is being comfortable with being uncomfortable when you're outside yeah. it can be in the extreme warm, but in this cold, let's face it in Manitoba here, in a normal winter, we're, we're outside. If you're going to be outside, it's spending a lot of time out in the cold. That fuel um, intake, be it food or hydration, is really important just so your body is producing enough heat so you are staying warm.
Mm -hmm. And I would imagine this is just a huge part of learning to love winter running, right? Is, is being prepared, dressing for it, hydrating yourself, wearing the right shoes. Would you agree with that? Like, it sounds like you have a propensity for being outside in the winter. You love it. You began your, your running career in December, as we talked about. Uh, but a lot of people really do not like it. So what advice would you have for someone who's not quite there yet in terms of their love for winter running? So much of it is just being mentally prepared to go out there and mm -hmm. obviously they're the right gear and that helps. Yeah, no, I think it's important for people to, uh, you know, when they look at the temperature, um, to be thinking if they're, if they're going for a run to be, you know, dressing for if it be 10 to 15 degrees warmer, you know, 20 below and, and being outside in the old days, watching the kids play hockey at the rink and 20 below when you're going to go for a run are two different ways of dressing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Yes. And I, like, I have heard that. So 10 degrees Celsius, imagine it's 10 degrees Celsius warmer than it actually is. And that's what you're dressing for. Is that correct? Yeah. Or even if, and again, depending on how long or, or what the level of intensity is that, you know, you might even wear less than what you think you need. You know, again, I'll go back to, uh, you know, a day that's maybe 10, 15 below if there's no wind and I'm going for a run, you know, I might be a base layer and just a heavier t-shirt on top of that mm. um, for clothing on the top, just because I know, you know, I want, again, I want that perspiration to get away from my body. I know I'm going to be generating a lot of heat because I'm going to be out there running. Uh, so as long, you know, the two commits, um, you know, what, again, leg wear and, and your runners and socks and that. Um, but like I say, again, you have to factor in distance, intensity level and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. But absolutely. I think 10 is a great way to start. And then, and then tweak it from there yeah. based on your own yeah. specific. Yeah, and experience yeah. too, let's face it. You know, it's, it's even for me, it's trial and error. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and you, you can't discount wind too. Correct. Like that adds a whole other layer that, you know, if it says 10 degrees, minus 10 degrees, but there's a wind chill, I will tend to dress warmer. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. Especially in the winter, that wind is, uh, is, can be a bit of a game changer for sure. Yeah. And not just for your core, but then your extremities as well, you know, that 10, that 10, 15 degrees and that big wind chill and you're, at least I know the end of my nose has taken a beating over the years. So I might even have a face mask on before a lot of other people just because of some past, uh, past mistakes made. Another question I get asked a lot by people, and I don't feel like much of an expert in this area is about shoes. Like, do you wear, have to wear different shoes in the winter um, than you do in the summer, for example? And and if so, why? Is it because the feet get cold or because you need that more grip on your shoes in the winter running? What's your, What are your thoughts there? Depending on where you're going to be running a lot, um, let's face it, some areas get paved quite well and quite regularly. So a lot of times I think your day in, day out running shoes you'd wear through the summer are fine. Mm -hmm. um, I running shoe that's maybe a bit more trail based you know my experience finds that uh depending on models where maybe you're going to find the mesh is a little tighter if that makes sense to you so it's going to offer a bit more resistance to the moisture getting into your onto your feet um i think you'll find a trail shoe will get should give you a bit more grip as well uh when the stitch when this uh when it's outside and it's snowing a bit more and it's slipperier than normal so that's where maybe going to a trail shoe um, might be an advantage for your outdoor running. Uh, I know that's what I went into even before I started doing the winter events. You know, I found a um, kind of a running shoeish look in a trail shoe, but it had a, offered a much better grip and the weave of the material, though it wasn't waterproof, really uh, to me offered a lot of protection from keeping uh, from the moisture in that. That's super important is keeping your feet dry. What's your opinion on if it's super icy? So this is actually here in Winnipeg, at least this winter, we just, we still are just pretty much have almost no snow and it's been hovering above and below zero a lot. So it's ice, like there's sheer ice out there. Yeah. Compare and contrast for me, like just good grip, say a Vibram sold trail shoe to adding some kind of external kind of like ice spike type thing onto your existing shoe versus uh, a shoe that has built-in spikes? 
in my opinion, a shoe that comes with or the addition of some sort of grips into the bottoms, I think could be a game changer for people in terms of your traction, your safety out there. Nowadays, I, I, I wouldn't go without having it on there. Of course, the disadvantages, you know, don't walk into the house and go across the carpet wearing them. <laughs> you know, your yes, significant other may true. take some exception to you poking holes in the carpet. Don't uh, step on your cat. <laughs> yeah, the hardwood floors, they don't appreciate that as well. Um, on dry pavement, um, I think you might notice the um, spikes, be it come on the shoe or an aftermarket. You might, and that might make some people uncomfortable, you know, wearing them on, yeah. on something like that. But in a trail condition or on ice, on pavement or on a hard pack trail, I think the advantage is to having some extra grips like that. And I prefer those more than the slide on or those, you know, the, and I forget the brand name. Yeah, tracks. Thank you. If I'm choosing between those or putting screws into the bottom of my shoes, I'm going with the screws in my shoes. Mm. Um, I have to say, I 100% agree with you there. I've tried it all. I find adding something to my shoe, like the the Yak Tracks, no offense to the brand. I think that's fine for walking, but for running, it adds weight to your foot, first off. <laughs> um, and I find my gait changes. Like I just don't hit the ground normally. This is where I am going to personally give a big shout out to Salming. I have to on this topic. And, you know, they're not sponsoring this podcast, but I'm an ambassador for the brand because I do genuinely love the shoes. And the ice spike shoes have the built-in spikes in. They're super light. And like you said, Scott, a game changer for me. Like I would finish a winter with such deep hip rotator pain from constantly trying to stabilize myself. Oh yeah. <laughs> and running slower. Like once I got into those spike shoes, the hip pain went away and I could run at a decent speed. So they're usually more expensive, but I think worth every penny if you're going to be running in a place where it's sub-zero for more than a month or two. At least that's my opinion. No, I agree 100%. And you mentioned even running, but even walking. Like, you know, when I got into the uh, Winter Ultras, Kim, I found the addition of of putting the screws in the bottom of my shoes Um was certainly a, a great benefit to me. And, and we're talking, you know, just a, basically a hiking pace or a good hike pace anyway. So what do you mean by putting screws in the bottom of your shoes? Tell our listeners, like you're talking the hex screws. Well, there, you can get them from the hardware stores. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a brand called Ice Spikes. I believe locally the running room used to carry them. I don't know if they still do. Uh, but you'll get, you know, a package of maybe 50 of these little screws um, and a device to screw them into the bottom of your shoes. Um, and does and that damage your shoes? Like, do you end up taking them out when you don't need them anymore? Or does it ruin you your can. Um, they put little holes into the the rubber in the bottom of your shoes. Um, I don't think that, you know, I've used them for years in my shoes. Sometimes they'll pull out. Um, I don't think they've damaged my footwear by any stretch of the imagination myself. Uh, I've, I've got no concerns using them. I've had personally. some clients that I coach actually say it you know, it can change sort of the pressure points on your foot. Oh, that, yeah, that's what I mean. It's depending on yeah. what you're running on. Like if you're going on to pavement, I could yeah. see where some people would find them bothersome for sure. And I um, think that's kind of my thing with them. It's like, it, it is such a great idea in theory. And I find practically there's only a few days of the year that I really feel like I need them. And then usually I can't find them because I have the yak tracks right there. So I'm like, where are those things? You know, after I've got my four or five layers on and then I need to find these things too. It's like, just, it it sounds like a great idea and it doesn't always work out in practice. That's my experience. Oh no. Again, depending on what you're doing, where uh, again, my, my use of them was pretty much all trail based. So I'm, you know, into something a bit softer, even the hard packed snow, I'm gripping into that. Whereas again, on pavement, I could certainly see where someone could see them not being as useful, perhaps. Let's talk about skin. Okay. So if it's like zero to minus 20 with no wind chill, it's usually not a big deal. Your your exposed skin is going to be fine just because you're maintaining body heat. But if you add some wind chill in there and you're getting into the minus 30s plus, protecting your skin can be really important. Scott, I know you uh, you have a sensitive spot on your nose now yes. <laughs> from, yeah. from a time that you uh, got a bit of frostbite. So talk to us about some hacks or some things you can do to protect your skin. Uh, for your face, I've got, um, three different, uh, face masks that I, that I'll choose between depending on temperature and length of time I'm going to be outside. 
something as simple as the uh, neoprene face mask uh, you're going to buy from Canadian Tire, perhaps, and upwards from there. Um, but for again, again, because I have made the, a terrible error one night, and I mean, still have the end of my nose, but it, I certainly paid the price for being outside for an extended period of time without covering it. But the face mask like that is great. Uh, tape. Um, again, I wear glasses, so I've got uh, actually the end of my nose and right at the bridge of my nose uh, from being outside in the cold. Um, so putting tape uh, on your skin, I find, is a great preventative measure. What kind of tape? Frost tape, it's called. I haven't seen it up here. I've seen it more in the States. The tape you'll have at your work, Kim, the K-tape, yeah. uh, works great, I find, especially you know under you know, your cheeks and, and your nose and that, it cuts to shape well, it sticks well. And as long as you're careful peeling it off, you know, it's not too, too bad. I've even just used white, white athletic tape. Again, you just got to be a little careful taking it off, but the protection that offers is huge. So Kim mentioned that you have a sensitive spot on your <laughs> nose. Have you uh, made one of these mistakes previously? Are you speaking from experience here? Yes. So after doing Epica, my next winter event was uh, an event called Tuscobia. It starts in a small town called Rice Lake, Wisconsin. It's a uh, um, two versions. There's an 80 mile version and the 160 mile version. After doing one winter event, I thought I was good enough to do the 160 but I got halfway through at the turnaround point at uh, mile 80. Uh, the overnight, from what I found out later, got down to minus 27 Fahrenheit. So quite cold. I made a few other errors, but one of that have since also affected the ends of my fingers. But I spent the entire night without even dawning on me that I should put something over my face. And when I got to the halfway point, um, you know, one of the volunteers <laughs> kind of looked and said, I don't think your nose is in really good shape, Scott. And, you know, you could see that bright white kind of... Um, yeah, that's not good. No. And, uh, of course, it, uh, you know, all peeled and went all funny, you know, a few days afterwards. And I have to admit, ever since then, um, it's, uh, like I say, I'll probably have a face mask on sooner than a lot of other people will when I'm outside for an extended period of time because of that. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that there is a temperature that's too cold to run inside? I can remember Ooh, our question. first winter here, uh, 28, 2018 was our first winter here and, or 2019. And it, there was a day we were the coldest place on earth. I think we were minus 54 one day in the winter. Is that too cold? Like, is there ever a day that you should move it indoors onto the treadmill just for safety? Well, you know, I'm only 10 years short of my medical degree, so I would, I would, I, I don't want to say an absolute in terms of from uh, what's too cold. I can tell you in years past, I have been out for a run in, um, with the wind chill in excess of minus 50. Yeah. You do warm up. I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and again, surprisingly enough, it was, you know, base layer, uh, midweight wool. And uh, the, one, the one running jacket I had that had some uh, synthetic insulation, chest and back, and uh, knit sleeves and a knit panel down the sides. Yeah. Um, I think it builds character. Because if you look at the 2018 <laughs> Boston Marathon, the winners like Des Linden, people training in Michigan, Krista Duchesne, like we, we've built character through all these uh, cold runs with tons of layers. I yeah. think it's important to highlight though, too, it's a process just like anything oh, else. Yeah. Like you're not yeah. going to run indoor on a treadmill and then all of a sudden go for your first run at minus 50. You do need time to learn, time to experiment with gear, time to experiment with hydration. And then also your body needs time to adapt to the cold, just like it does to training. So backing up, you know, we asked you some advice for, for new winter runners. If I could give one of my own pieces of advice, it would be just keep running right through the fall into the winter. Like now, you know, it's December, it might be too late if you haven't been doing that. But your body does get used to the cold, just like it gets used to the hot. And what used to feel like really cold at minus five no longer feels that cold eventually well your first winter here kim i let you a oh. face mask <laughs> um and i remember you asking me if i'd ever use it and i remember i think i said to you well until it gets 40 below i don't i mean this is kind of my you know things have gone bad for it's really really cold face mask but 
you know, here you use it. I was using it at minus 10. It was yeah. the cold Avenger face mask that yeah. like snowmobilers wear, right? Like I look <laughs> like Darth Vader with this thing on. And, and you were warm. I was warm, but you know what? Within, I think I only used it for that year and maybe one or two runs the next year. And now I don't use it at all because I've just gotten used to it. We have a running joke about, you know, it's, it's only minus five. It's still short weather. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a Wim Hof fan and you, you don't technically um, subscribe to, to the method, but I say you rock some of the Wim Hof stuff pretty well yourself, Scott, but, but again, it's been a process, right? Like, absolutely. Yeah. You don't jump again. You don't just, just jump in and start doing it by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. But I think it's important to, to note that too, because you're right, Kim, it's, it's almost like we accept that we get used to running in the heat. We get better at running in the heat, Mm -hmm. you know, a few weeks in, but I don't think we always realize that we can adapt to running in the cold. So that's really important for especially any new runners who are not used to running in winter um, to hear is just keep trying it, keep giving it a try, like go in palatable doses, go exactly. for 20 yes. minutes. You yeah, know? exactly. One mistake I made initially was I did all my shorter weekday runs on the treadmill. And then the thought of doing a 25 kilometer, you know, long run was just I, I just couldn't handle the thought of that on a treadmill. So I would only do that run outside. But that was a real mistake because <laughs> I hadn't been adapting all week. And then I go out for this long run where I'm potentially now way away from my car <laughs> if something goes wrong. Like that's the other thing you have to think about in an emergency. If I rolled an ankle, if I have to stop and walk home. Am I dressed properly for that? Am I, you know, like it adds a whole other layer. But if you start gaining confidence with shorter runs throughout the week and your body gets used to that throughout the week, it's not as daunting to think about doing a longer run. Yeah. Or you do the 20 mile run in one mile increments that go past your car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Do what you have to do, miss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott, one of your very first races, if I remember from the beginning of this conversation, was the Manitoba Marathon, right? Back in 2008, you took on the half marathon after only six months of running. June of 2009, yes. 2009, okay. I understand, though, from, say, 2012 to 2019, you have been a pace bunny for that event. Yes, that's correct. Uh, Either the full or the half. So what is it about pacing, volunteering, giving back that you love, that you feel so strongly about with this sport? For that event in particular, uh, when I was running the full marathon in 2010, uh, my father passed away while I was out running. So in 2011 rolled around, I, I didn't have the desire to, have, to go into the event at all and sit on the sidelines. Uh, in 2012, I felt like you know, I should go back to the event, but I, I wanted to do, uh, it was important for maybe to do it for not just me. And I thought pacing was some way of, of giving back. So I signed up to pace the full marathon that year. And as luck would have it, this young lady asked if she could join my group. And I had the most incredible experience getting this woman to the, uh, the finish line. We got to um, just in front of the uh, gymnasium there. So we could hear the announcers at the stadium and this uh, lady, she stopped and she waved us on. And, and of course, uh, if you've worked as a pacer, been with a pacer, you know that they, they hold the pace, right? They, mm-hmm. if you falter, they keep going. Mm-hmm. But I remember looking at her and I remember thinking, I just can't leave her. So I looked at this young man and this other young lady and I looked at him and I said, just run. I said, just run. You're a half mile. You'll make your time. Just run. And I walked over to where this woman was um, bent over. You know that that gasping noise we will make when we've overworked ourselves. You're thinking a lung is going to come up or something. And as uh, as she's all bent over, I I leaned down as so I could get as close to her as I could. And I whispered in her ear. I said, "You know, you've told me you've given birth to two kids. This is just a marathon. Get up and run." And the language was a little more colorful than that. I must admit. <laughs> She snapped to attention, and my first thought was maybe I've insulted her somehow with the language. And she looked at me and said, childbirth was easier. And she started running. (laughs) Anyway, we got into the stadium. I felt at that time my my job was done, and I got her in front of me. 
But as we went by the stands, and this was in the old football stadium for the uh, university team, not the bomber stadium, obviously back then, you know, you can hear cheering. Obviously there's lots of people there, but you could really hear cheering when she got to the stands. Mm -hmm. And as she's running down the face of the stands, I look and there's this older lady running the length. It was her mother. So as she went by the stands, her mother was running with her in the stands as she crossed the finish line. So like I say, after that, it just, uh, it, it just, along with, you know, the memory of my father, but just that event really made uh, pacing quite special for me. There is something so amazing about pacing someone, like helping them through those low points in that race and then seeing them overcome. It's There's just something that's even better almost than absolutely. your own wins, right? It, absolutely. You know, at mile 24, she looked at me and said, you know, I can't really feel anything from my hips down. <laughs> and I said, what? And she goes, well, you know, we're running a minute a mile faster than I trained for. I I just about fell over. I'm thinking a minute, a mile faster and we're at mile 24. And now you tell me, (laughs) oh my gosh. You know, what's so amazing, Scott, is that you didn't just pace that year. You went on to continue to pace right through up until last year, I believe in multiple events. And you took an event that let's be honest, the year your father passed away during, like actually during that marathon, there's trauma associated with that, right? And that memory, you replaced, I wouldn't say replaced, you added memories to the Manitoba Marathon. You could just hear it in your voice as you're talking about pacing this woman that are healing and enriching and inspiring. Thank you for that. I'm sure there's so many runners out there that have crossed that finish line that would love to say another thank you for that as well. So our, our sport needs more people like that. Thank you, miss. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, you know, you've inspired not just through your pacing, but just through your mentoring and your constant openness and willingness to give some helpful advice to newer and younger runners. Who has inspired you in your running life and in your running journey? You know, obviously, and again, I'm going to throw the word elite out there. And I think anyone I mentioned in that would probably you know, give me a dirty look for it. But, you know, people locally, you know, like uh, my friend Sue, Mallory Richard, locally here, just an amazing young lady, you know, to see them go out and perform like they do at such a high level, inspire, admire, you know, that that's really something I think to watch and, and watch them do uh, what they do and do it so well. But really, how about the regular folks who maybe have to go out there and give almost 110% to be mid-packer, back-a-packer, just to beat the cutoffs. How can you not look at that and get inspired? One year at Spruce Woods when I was volunteering, and and there was a gentleman, he's got a few years on me, Donovan Hale, very fast roadrunner, wanting to do 100 miles. He came down the trail near the end of the race, and he had missed the cutoff, uh, and he had fought hard. And he came into the area where I was, uh, had the aid station set up, and as he got there, he knew he had missed. He looked at me and said, I've, I've missed the cutoff, haven't I? And I said, yes, Donovan, I'm afraid, you know, your race is over. And he sat down for a bit and he rested it. He'd pushed himself really hard. And, you know, he got up and, and the only word I can think of is grace. And he thanked everyone there, he even thanked the other runners sitting there. And he had a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. And he just turned and he was a couple of miles back to the start finish line down the trail. And, uh, you know, as he turned to walk away, I thought how, you know, he was still proud of what he accomplished, but just the grace and how he handled everything. Hmm, Excuse me. (laughs) Think of that. And I'm still tearing up. Mm. That to me is a memory I'll, I, I keep and I hopefully keep forever. Yeah, there's something about the way that people carry themselves, especially in times of disappointment or frustration, right? That it speaks volumes about them as a person, for sure. So before we get into our final five rapid fire questions, we were curious, what's next for you? Do you have anything that you're dreaming about on the running side or life side of things right now uh, once COVID passes and we get back to some semblance of normal? 
Yeah, well, for me, unfortunately, I've transitioned out of running and into cycling. So my my races are are almost a bit of a redos of what I've done on foot in the winter. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm hoping for open borders and and a vaccine that works. But for me to get back to uh, the Tuscobia event, uh, Arrowhead in particular, and uh, Active Epica at the end of 21 here and going into 22 are really, really important to me. And with that said, and, and uh, you know, hopefully my wife isn't listening, maybe Alaska <laughs> isn't even off the table anymore. Ooh, and, I was uh, wondering about that. You know, there's yeah. uh, the ITI in Alaska, yeah. uh, 350 McGrath has a nice ring to it. Or maybe a transverse of Greenland, that Arctic Circle, Arctic Circle Trail sure looks like a lot of fun. Obviously, it can be done through the summer, but I think uh, a winter traverse on a fat bike across Greenland um, would be quite the challenge, I think. You mentioned that you're not running anymore. So what uh, has caused you to transition from running to the fat bike? Well, I played a lot of football as, as a youth, and uh, the last few years uh, was as a running back. And um, if I had one skill, uh, it was I was able to um, uh, persevere. Uh, so it, it, uh, I was hard to keep down. I, I think maybe I'd be a great extra in one of those zombie movies. Uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, as, as later in life, um, it, I certainly paid a price for it. And, and many years ago, um, I had both knees scoped out. Uh, the left one was um, quite extensive. And, and again, a bit of ignorance on my part, you know, as they're in there, you know, the fella said, you know, you'll probably have to come back again. So we could just leave it or we could really clean up your meniscus now. Mm. And of course I said, yeah, just clean it up. I mean, I didn't know it was stupid. I was ignorant on my part. Well, cleaning it up meant there isn't much left, wasn't much left uh-huh. in there uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> after that was done. Um, so of course, uh, as I've gotten a bit older, um, arthritis set in a narrowing of the gap on the medial side could i still probably go out and run a little bit probably but my knee just doesn't allow me to do what i want to do in terms of being Mm -hmm. on my feet anymore so i I feel fortunate enough that um you know i started this cycling um this past year and and actually really enjoy it so what would you say to somebody that says to you oh scott man running just ruined your knees no i uh I think back to now is like I say, I was playing football and I mean, there were times I was really sore, like really sore. And you just drag yourself off the bench and uh, just get back out there, whether it meant you're running on one leg or not, you, uh, you know, you just did what you thought you had to do at the time. The decision that you made to finally, you know, transition exclusively to fat biking wasn't, didn't come easy, right? Oh, there was... Gosh, no. <laughs> there was a lot of bargaining. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, um, I uh, I have to admit I was terribly depressed yeah, for a while yeah. there after Tuscobia. I've got a lot more miles behind me than I do in front of me. That's for sure at my age and that. But I want to make those good miles, and I really thought I was going to miss out on a lot uh, when when I realized I wouldn't be able to run anymore. Well, I think it's almost like a grieving process, and I, I know that might sound dramatic, but for us runners, when we can't run, it's it's tough. And it takes oh, yeah. a little bit to come to terms with it, to find something else that will kind of fill the void. <laughs> right. And it's, uh, I hope that the fat biking will do it for you. Well, it better. My wife's allowing me to make quite the investment so far. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I'll have a choice in the matter or not. I'll just have to go out. <laughs> Let's move into our rapid fire questions. First rapid fire question. What is your favorite mantra? I have two, but my favorite one is just survive somehow. And the other one, as silly as it sounds, is from a a, a Star Wars movie. I am one with the force and the force is with me. And before you laugh, when I actually repeat that to myself, I do start to go faster. Mm. So it works. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what these mantras are. It's like whatever works, right? Yes. If you could go anywhere in the world to run, where would it be? If I could run again, I would, as we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. I'd be back to those mountains in BC in a heartbeat. Mm, Manning Park. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've already covered this next one. It's, are there any races on your bucket list? You've listed Tuscobia, Arrowhead, ITI, Greenland, anything else? (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I think I think we're good there. <laughs> hey, some pretty big, pretty big bucket there. So, <laughs> yeah. How about favorite running book or movie? You know, I have to admit, um, in terms of the movie, there was, and I can't remember the name of it, but the movie about Steve Prefontaine. Enjoyed the movie. Don't really have a running book. And again, it's funny. Once I got back into these winter ultras, uh, the books I did start reading was more the Explorer kind of ones. So uh, Thin Ice by Eric Larson, uh, Shackleton's Footsteps by uh, Wolseley, and then a lady, uh, Helen, I've forgotten her last name, but she was the first woman to go solo to the North Pole. So at the end of a long run or ride, what is your favorite indulgence? <laughs> so it's kind of funny, especially as it's gotten a bit colder out. The family even have it out waiting for me. Believe it or not, something simple as the cup of soup. I think it's the hot, the hot water, the copious amounts of sodium that's in it. But that is my post, uh, post-workout uh, indulgence. Sometimes too, if it's really cold. Oh, you know what? I'm just chuckling to myself because, you know, on summer solstice, like June 21st, Scott's already starting countdowns to winter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, everything is within the context of winter. Even your post run indulgence is a a winter beverage. Okay. So thank you so much for um, joining us on this podcast. Uh, Scott, uh, you have so much wisdom, so much knowledge to share that uh, I'm sure many people will get some um, good tips and tricks for winter running out of this, as well as just how to keep going through, through the ups and downs of life. So thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, ladies. Thank you very much for having me.